Have you ever wondered why some things contain the individual parts that they do? So for example, we were painting the house a few years ago and I went to the paint store to get some paint with the color soft cloud. And so I found the right sheen that we wanted and got the right style of paint and I took it up to the counter and I, I told the guy that I want, I want the color soft cloud put into this can of paint. So he programs it in, he, he puts it on the paint color machine or whatever that's called. And as he programs this in, I start to see pigments coming down into the paint. And I was a little surprised to see there was a lot of dark, either black or a very dark brown going into the paint. There was also some red and some blue. And the reason I was surprised is because I was looking for something that was more like an off-white or a beige, something very light in color. And what I didn't understand was, why would these pigments be going into this can of paint? Why were they going to be in there? What was the purpose? What value could they possibly add? And then as the pigments were added and the paint can was shaken for a few minutes and he opened up the can and smeared a little bit on a test piece of paper, it was the exact color that I was looking for. So what I didn't realize before was apparent to me that all those colors did add values. Those colors did need to be in that color of paint to get exactly what I was looking for so that I could have that completed project, that completed product. Last week, Pastor Justin concluded our series, Hope in the Chaos. We spent about 18 months in the book of Genesis. And as we read through the account of Genesis, we read through many different stories that sometimes had us asking, why is this in the Bible? Or does the Bible really say that? Some examples would be, the inappropriate relationships between Lot and his daughters would also be um, Abraham deceiving kings for his own benefit. Sarah, when she heard that she was going to have a child at a very old age, laughed almost as if mocking God. We saw Judah's inappropriate relationship, and we saw Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers as his brothers watched him go away. And we saw many instances of Jacob and his deceptions as well. But just like with the pigments and the paint, what we saw with those accounts was they needed to be in the Bible. They did add value because what we saw from that is that they were necessary. And we saw how using, by those accounts being in the Bible, they make us as Christians, as believers in God, to be more complete, to be more equipped. And our passage this week in Psalm 83 is also like that. And it's like those pigments in the paint that we may wonder, why is this in the Bible? See, Psalm 83 is what's called an imprecatory psalm. And I'm trying to think of the phrase that um, Justin used last week, a $2.50 word that basically means cursing. So in essence, what the psalmist was doing was he was basically asking God to, call, to, for, to curse his enemies or to take vengeance for him against them. But typically when we think of the Psalms, we think of more of songs that are, so, literally songs that are sung for worship, those that are encouraging, those that are designed to build us up. But on the surface, the imprecatory Psalms are dark. And, and ex a couple of examples of these are Psalm chapter 58, verses six and nine, which gets some graphic language for us to see. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out their, the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. 
Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. And then again, more graphic language in Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. There are about 20 imprecatory psalms, depending upon whose list that you use, and not all of them are as graphic as what I just read. And, and we see from some of these passages that they are hard to read, and, and they can bring to mind questions like, why are these psalms in the Bible? Is, are, is this psalm teaching me something that, that I think is contrary to God's character or contrary to what is taught in the New Testament? This morning, I'm going to attempt to answer some of these questions. And the first one is, why, why is Psalm 83 and other imprecatory psalms even in the Bible? To do this, we need to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, all Scripture is breathed out or it's inspired by God. All scripture is profitable for teaching. All scripture is profitable for reproof. All scripture is profitable for correction. And all scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. Why? So that we may be complete. When, when, with the word complete here, think of it this way, that, that the man of God should be completely adequate, that, that the man of God should be furnished completely that the man of God should be fully qualified. Therefore, if, if all of Scripture is profitable to equip us and to complete us, then the imprecatory Psalms should be in the Bible, like Psalm 83, and we should understand why it's there. Just like the dark pigments in the can of paint needed to get the color that I wanted, these dark passages, like the imprecatory Psalms, help us to be complete and equipped. But when we ask the question, why is this in the Bible? We, we shouldn't do it in a way that's indignant. We, we should do it in a way that expresses curiosity so that we can better understand who God is as the character of God and better understand the Bible. And here at Parkside, we do believe that the Bible is without error. We, we do believe that it is authoritative and sufficient. In, in fact, one of our statements of faith indicates that. Uh, within our basic beliefs, we say basically that, that we believe the Bible is without error, authoritative, and sufficient. And our doctrinal, one of our doctrinal beliefs builds on that to add a little bit more in that. And like Psalm 83, and, or Psalm 83 and others like it are therefore inspired by the Holy Spirit because he's the one that placed them in the canon of Scripture and they are profitable for us. Before we jump into the main points of Psalm 83, our big idea for this morning is that imprecatory psalms equip us to deal with injustice. They equip us to deal with injustice. And we're going to look at this in three main points this morning. The first of which is the complaint that we see in verses 1 through 8, and then the curse in verses 9 through 15, and finally we'll conclude with the cry for conversion in verses 16 through 18. We read earlier in verse 1, we, we see, O oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. 
See, this is addressed to God. This, this is a prayer from the psalmist. He, he was not writing his complaint to his, to his wife. He was not writing it to a neighbor. He was writing this complaint to God. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying, he, he's praying this to God to acknowledge the situation that Israel is experiencing and he's seeking God's deliverance. And, and this is a very bold request that's being made. Again, Notice how the author begins with this. But before I read that, I, I do want to clarify. When I say complaint, this isn't a complaint of, oh, my porridge is too cold. Or, oh, my bed is too hard or too soft. No, this is more of a legal context in which it's a statement where they're seeking someone to exercise authority over the current situation. Looking for someone with jurisdiction, if you will, over the matter that's able to resolve it. But we jump back here, and one of the ways that the author states this complaint is it's not just against the people of Israel. Listen to what he says. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O oh God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people, and they consult together against your treasured ones. See, this is a plea to God to act on behalf of his own people. Because the, the injustice that's being done, yes, it's against the people of Israel, but it's against God himself because this is God's chosen people. And the author is seeking this audience of God within God's court of justice. And then after making the case for God to intervene by showing, hey, you've got jurisdiction here, right? I'm seeking your authority to do this. He, he begins and lists the offenses of some of these enemies. Verses 2 through 5 talk about how they, they make an uproar and they have raised their heads. The, the context of that phrase, raise their heads, is, is that of arrogance and indignation and very much of a, I'm coming to get you type of an attitude. And in verse 3, we see that they are devising plans to work against God's people. They're conspiring together. And in verse 4 is where we see the first threat that the author identifies. He says, the author says, they say, come, let us, this is what the enemies, are, the enemies of Israel are saying, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. See, God's enemies wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth so that they would no longer be remembered. The context of the word wipe out here to wipe off is to indicate that they be not only completely destroyed, but that they be gone from memory. They be gone from existence that no one in the future is ever going to remember that they even existed. And this complaint calls out the enemies by name. And, and this is not the usual thing that happens in the book of Psalms. When, when the enemies are identified, it's a, it's a general term as enemies. But here we see that the author of Psalm 83 identifies 10 nations that form a 10-nation coalition. And, and as we look at these names and having studied Genesis over the last 18 months, some of these names sound familiar, don't they? In verse 6, we see the name Edom. So to put this in context, this is a family fight. Okay, Edom, that we know from Genesis 36, is Esau. And Israel, we know from Genesis 35... Is Jacob. And Esau and Jacob are brothers. Esau is just a little bit older. But if you remember, what happened is, is Jacob was deceptive and he stole not only his older brother's birthright, 
but he also stole his blessing. And then a few hundred years later, when the nation of Israel was leaving Egypt, they wanted to move through the land of Edom, but Edom would not allow them to do that because of that family history. And now we see that family history, that family fight, if you will, continue. And this family connection here continues as well with the Ishmaelites in verse 6. Ishmael was the son of Abraham by Hagar. Hagar was not his wife. Hagar was actually his wife's handmaiden. But they couldn't have children, Hagar, or Abraham and Sarah. So Sarah said, here, take Hagar and go have a child. And Ishmael was born. So Ishmael then is the half-brother of Israel's father, Isaac. But we know once again from our study of Genesis that it is Isaac who was the son of the promise, not Ishmael. And here they are, once again, going at each other. We also see family ties in verse 6 with Moab. Moab is a son of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Ammon and Amalek that are referenced in verse 7 are also related to Israel as Ammon is one of the descendants of Lot and Amalek is a descendant of Esau. So five or half of, the, half of this 10-member coalition are related to Israel. The other half here, we'd read the names of the Hagrites, Gebel, Philistia, Tyre, Ashur, which Ashur is basically another name for Assyria. And we see in verse, at the bottom of at the end of verse 8, where it says they are the strong-armed children of Lot, meaning Assyria, it's not that they were related, but rather they were hired servants. They were mercenaries, if you will, that were hired by Lot to help defend and to help attack the nation of Israel. So as a quick side note, we see with these names, we, we see the downstream impacts of some of these accounts that we just talked about in Genesis, where Jake, Abraham getting ahead of God's plan and having a child with Hagar rather than waiting for God's timing for Isaac to be born. We see the inappropriate relationships between Lot and his daughters, Moab, and, and the list goes on. So as we see this, this 10-member coalition, Israel would have been significantly outnumbered as well. And it's easy for us to understand why this prayer was written seeking God to act with his authority and in his court of justice. Our, our application for this first point this morning is to view imprecatory psalms as a proper way to address injustice. Imprecatory psalms give us a proper way to address injustice. See, God is not blind to justice. We believe that God is just and therefore he knows what just justice looks like and he knows what injustice looks like. After all, his only son, Jesus Christ, experienced injustice through a very cruel, excruciating death on the cross and that was because of no wrongdoing that he had done. He went to the cross rather because we are sinful. So God knows that there's injustice in the world and, and God knows everything. So therefore, God knows there's injustice in the world, and he's also experienced that, is, that injustice with what was done to his own son. And there's no use in us hiding our frustration with God. With, not with God. There's no use in us in hiding our frustration, our being scared, and our apprehension when we face injustice. And I, and I think that's one of the points here of this psalm is to help us to understand that since God knows everything, he knows what we're feeling. He knows what we're thinking. 
So we, we shouldn't go to God and put on a happy face and pretend like everything's okay. We might get away with that here on a Sunday morning when someone asks us what we're, how we're doing, and we say, oh, okay, with a cliched response, and we move on when we're really not. We can't do that with God because He knows our thoughts. He knows what we're feeling. And, and these imprecatory psalms give us a model for how we can address injustice with God. We should be honest, but we should be open, and we should be descriptive, just like this example here. And we should use that, that, that same language that's already rolling around in our thoughts and in our minds as we explain this to God, because God knows them anyway, so let's just tell them, okay? And these should be done audibly, not just thinking these prayers, but these prayers should be prayed so that not only we, that God hears them, but that we hear them as well. There's a, there's a therapeutic component here, I believe, that helps us as we express this to God. And we, we audibly tell God these injustices that we're either seeing or that we're experiencing. And we use that same language. Let me share with you from an article from an individual named Russell Meek. It, the article is entitled, How the Imprecatory Psalms Helped Me Deal with Emotional Abuse. He says, I spent a lot of time in these passages of Scripture using them as a means to lament to God and to work through the pain and anger that I had for so long held on to. And slowly, ever so slowly, God began to change my heart. Giving expression to these emotions somehow freed me to exercise them less and less forcefully. There was only the sweet comfort of knowing that my prayers were reaching the one who could actually do something about it, God himself. One last point on this is uh, I, I am not implying that we should experience injustice or try to resolve this on our own. There are several instances where, excuse me, where biblical counsel is necessary. And when we suffer injustices, that may be one of them. These imprecatory psalms give us a way to deal with them, but we should not dismiss the fact that sometimes biblical counseling is necessary. Our second point today is the curse. And we see this in verses 9 through 15. We, remembering how this psalm starts, the author is asking for God to intervene. He, he's asking for God to no longer be silent and to no longer hold your peace. Well, here it comes. The description of the curse is not as graphic as what we read in Psalm 58 with break out their teeth or Psalm 137 about dashing the little ones against the rock. However, what the author is doing here in Psalm, 58, Psalm 83 is he's remembering what God has done in the past to rescue Israel. God would know that. And any, any other Jewish person that would hear this prayer prayed or this sung as a song would also understand the seriousness of the intent. We, we know that from Judges chapter 4. That provides the account of, of Sisera and Jabin. Sisera was the commander of the Canaanite army, and Jabin was, was the Canaanite king. Now, Judges doesn't, the book of Judges doesn't tell us much about what happened to Jabin other than he was destroyed. But when we read about what happened to Sisera, now again, Sisera was the commander of the army, but he fled from the battlefield, and he was hiding in a tent under a rug. And what Judges chapter 4 says, a tent peg was driven into his temple until it went down into the ground. See, the psalmist here didn't need to describe that because God knows how he defeated Sisera and Jabin. 
And again, the, the, the people of Israel would know this also. They would remember that. So instead, in Psalm 83, it just simply invokes the curse, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon. The reference here to Midian, the, the author doesn't state it, but the author would know how God defeated Midian with 300 men rather than the, the 22,000 that Gideon had put together. And they go out and they kill the, the princes Oreb and Zeb, and they lop off their heads and they take them back with them across the Jordan River. But he doesn't state that because God knows how he defeated them and the people of Israel knew because this is what they had been taught. So while the language in Psalm 83 might seem a little benign compared to some of the other imprecatory psalms, to God and the Jews who might have heard them sung or prayed, this was graphic and violent. And again, this matched the emotion of the author of this psalm. The author also makes a connection here between this current 10-member, 10 10-nation 10 coalition and the kings of Midian in verses 11 and 12 when he writes, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all the princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. What can be inferred here is that the author is basically asking God, God, I, I want you to do to this current, this group, 10-member coalition, exactly what you did to Midian. Okay? There's very similar language used here. The cursing doesn't end there. As we look at verses 13 through 15, we see a theme, and that is the theme there is making something insignificant or making something disappear uh, so that it no longer has any influence. In, in verse thir um, 13, we read, Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust. That can be translated as, as a tumbleweed. And as, as my mind goes to a Western movie where the tumbleweed's being blown through the old western town, and it's not attached to anything. Nobody wants it. Nobody notice it when it notices when it's gone. It's just insignificant, but it's garbage, if you will. And chaff, chaff is the husk that comes off the seeds of grain when it's being threshed or winnowed, and, and it flies away indiscriminately once the wind takes it. And what about that language about the forest fire? As the fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest. Now, we may not know firsthand what happens in a forest fire, but we can imagine some of the things. If you think back just a couple of weeks ago, we felt the impacts of that here with the, 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 the smoke clouds that came down from Canada because the wildfires and the forest fires were burning. Those fires are so big and so fast moving that they destroy everything in their past in their path. And that's what the author is calling for. Similarly, then he ends with terrify them with your hurricane. H having worked catastrophe claims in the insurance industry, I've seen this kind of devastation. And on, with, with large hurricanes, especially along the coast, what is not destroyed by the wind will be destroyed by the tidal surge that follows. It will, it will completely remove houses, buildings, and other structures, leaving only a foundation that might be visible from where something stood. Gone, ineffective, unable to influence, possibly not even remembered regardless of what the former glory or the former state was. In essence, the psalmist here is praying to God to execute judgment in the manner 
that Israel's enemies have stated they were going to do to them. Remember how this started in verse 4? The enemies of Israel say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. And in essence, the psalmist turns that around and prays to God and said, God, make them as insignificant as, as tumbleweed. Make them like the chaff that gets blown away. Completely destroy them like a forest fire or like a hurricane. Make it so that nobody knows them or that they even existed. Our application for this point of the curse is to view imprecatory psalms as a way to lament, to approach God with humility while still expressing how we feel. I, I really like the way Mark Vrogop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, addresses psalms of lament. And imprecatory psalms are a, are a subgenre, if you will, of the songs of lament. So this model that I'm going to give you here fits very well with these imprecatory psalms. There's, there's four steps in this model. Turn, complain, ask, and trust. Simply turn to God. And we see the author of this psalm doing that in the first verse. He, he turns to God in prayer, and this is what we should do as well. See, we shouldn't just type out a 140-character rant on some social media post for the few followers that we have, okay? No, we, we, should trust, we should turn to the living God who can do something about it because other people can't. So after then, we turn to God, we then state our complaint. And again, that complaint is not, oh, my porridge is too cold or my bed's too soft. It's, it's a legal premise, if you will, that's a, appealing to the God who is the one to whom we submit to in prayer. So with that, we, we are asking God to take jurisdiction over this matter, and we're asking for God to resolve it in his court of justice. So when we turn to God in prayer, we state our complaint, we state our case for why we think God has jurisdiction, and then we ask for relief. If you ask God to allow your oppressors to do whatever you want to be done to them, he might do that. Or God may answer your prayer in a different way. And he may answer your request with that person repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And allowing us to see how God will then use that person in ways that we could never imagine. If that seems a little far-fetched, let me remind you of the Apostle Paul. See, Paul's conversion is detailed in Acts chapter 9. And he was an enemy of the first century church. He was persecuting the church. And I'm sure that there were prayers that were being prayed to remove Paul from doing that. There might have even been prayers for God to take him out, to destroy him or to kill him. But the way God answered the prayer was he miraculously saved him. And as a result of that, we see throughout many letters of the New Testament were actually written by the Apostle Paul, and it tells how God used him after his conversion. Our, our final step in the pattern of lament is to simply trust God. I shouldn't say simply because that can be, as simple as that sounds, that can be hard to do at times, can it? But we should trust God. And one point of the imprecatory Psalms is to let our prayers be honest and to reveal our assessment of what we see as reality. And as we give these matters to God, we submit to him and we trust that he is the one who knows the right course of action to take. And as we submit to him and admit to God that he knows the right course of action to take, we're acknowledging that we might not be the best one to determine 
what God should do. We should trust him. This is a point here that we, we, we see that this is true not just in this instance, but in the broader umbrella of God's providence and God's sovereignty. We should also remember that we too walked following the course of this world at one point. But God saved us. As the Apostle Paul wrote, But God, being rich in mercy because of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's from Ephesians chapter, four, about chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. See, God has the power to save you. And God has the power to save your oppressors. And we should not do anything to attempt to limit what God wants to accomplish through his good and perfect will. And whether God chooses to administer his wrath or whether God chooses to administer his mercy, that's his decision to make. It's not ours. And we should trust in God's wisdom. Our final point this morning is the cry for conversion. And we see that in verses 16 through 18. I believe that verse 16 is actually the key verse of this entire psalm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. After calling out 10 nations for their oppression against the nation of Israel and calling on God to avenge Israel and to take vengeance upon these enemies in violent ways, the author of this psalm actually stops and pleads to God on their behalf that they may seek the name of the Lord. What's implied here is that the enemies of Israel might actually repent of their sin. And if these evil nations would turn from their sin and turn toward God in repentant faith, and they would seek his name, they could experience God's salvation rather than God's wrath. What's interesting, though, is right after that, the author then reverts back in verse 17 when he says, Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. So if they don't repent, God, if they repent, save them. If they don't, do with them what you will. But then he comes back in verse 18. And again, we see another cry for conversion. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Now, I need to clarify. I I shouldn't say clarify, but just make a point here. There, There are some scholars who would disagree with what I just said. And because they believe that that's a general calling in verses 16 through 18, where God would call upon God, the, the psalmist calling for them to know who God is in knowledge only, but not in repentant faith. I, however, believe what other scholars believe, and that is that verses 16 through 18 are actually a call for repentance and faith. So there's two ways to look at that. I do believe that God, this psalm is actually calling them to faith and repentance. Our final application this morning is that imprecatory psalms are encouragement to trust God and not to take vengeance on our own. You see, God is righteous and justice, is righteous and just, and we are not. Our vengeance is based on emotion. God's vengeance is based on righteousness and justice. The Bible tells us that vengeance is reserved for God and God alone. Some examples that we see in Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, uh, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself of my foes. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And then two examples from the New Testament that actually use Deuteronomy 32 as their source. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. In Psalm 83, the, the, the author here is, he prays to God, recounting how God worked to defeat the Midianites and how God worked to defeat the Canaanites. And he's trusting God as he's remembering God's faithfulness. And he's calling on God to once again protect his people. The psalmist outlines his request for God and then he requests for God and to take action and then he inserts verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. And this is not without precedent in the Bible. There are accounts where God indicates that he will stay his hand if a nation repents. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. We need to trust God. See, God knows all things and we don't. Our knowledge is limited. We don't know how God is going to use injustice. But we can trust God. And as Romans 8.28 states, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That does not say all good things work together for good but all things work together for good. And that includes any form of injustice. See, God also knows that it's hard for us to see how God will use good when we're facing injustice. But we can trust that he will. I'm not aware of any passage in Scripture that challenges or that tells us to understand. Rather, Scripture says over and over and over again to trust in God. Again, I'm not aware of any passage that says understand it, but rather to trust. And that includes letting him execute vengeance because vengeance belongs to him. We actually saw an example of this last week. Again, Pastor Justin closed out the book of Genesis with Genesis chapter 50. There's a, an, an account here where Joseph is talking with his brothers. They'd approached him after, after Jacob had died. And, and they said, hey, dad said you shouldn't treat us badly. And this is Joseph's response. That wasn't actually what he said, but something like that. But Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? See, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What if Joseph had taken vengeance against his brothers? 
as if that were even possible. Think about the implications of that. Now, there's, I do want to be careful here because there's no indication in the account of Genesis that Joseph prayed in precatory prayers, so I'm not stating that, nor am I implying that. Rather, this point is illustrative to demonstrate that we should not step in to tread where God alone has authority to act, and that is in the aspect of taking vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And just as Joseph had hope in the chaos, we can have hope in the chaos of abuse. We can have hope in the chaos of oppression. We can have hope in the chaos of injustice. And we can see how the imprecatory prayers are profitable to help make us complete and equipped by showing us to trust God and to not take vengeance on our own. Maybe you're here this morning and you're harboring anger because of injustice that's been done to you. Let me encourage you to use the model that we just talked about. Cry out to God and trust Him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you've not experienced the gift of salvation, let me encourage you to consider that today. Through the injustice that Jesus suffered on the cross, God understands any pain that you experience. And we welcome the opportunity to speak with you if you have questions about this psalm or about anything that I've mentioned this morning. If you have general questions about Jesus, we would love to talk with you after the service. Myself and several of the other pastors will be back there at the back behind the stone wall. We encourage the opportunity to speak with you. Or maybe you're a guest with someone today. Ask the person who brought you if you have questions. You see, Jesus suffered injustice so that he could take the punishment for our sins, for what we deserve, and he gives salvation and eternal life with God in heaven to all all who confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And on the surface and in the midst of the darkness of some of the words that are here, we can see your graciousness, your goodness, your mercy come out of it. God, I ask that today, that that through this, that we, we can address you honestly and openly. That that when we come to you, we know that you understand what we're truly thinking. And God, again, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never accepted your gift of salvation, that they would do so today, repent of their sin, and come to faith in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for this, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in just a few minutes...